Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Ladies and gentlemen, I am thrilled to introduce the third edition of the Behind the Knife Absite Podcast Companion. This latest version offers enhanced images with immersive audio content for each section, making it an unparalleled educational resource. We've expanded our content with new chapters covering topics like MIS, oncology, OBGYN, urology, and more. You can find the book in both print and ebook formats on Amazon. Get ready to elevate your knowledge and achieve top Absite scores with the all-new Behind the Knife Absite Podcast Companion, an indispensable partner on your path to surgical excellence. Good luck on the upcoming Absite exam and dominate the day. Welcome to another Endocrine Surgery Podcast. I'm Barb Miller from The Ohio State University and I'll be your moderator today. I'll be joined today by the rest of our endocrine surgeons here at OSU, Dr. John Fay, Clinical Professor of Surgery, and Dr. Priya Dedia, Assistant Professor of Surgery. Also joining us is Dr. Samantha Ruff, one of our current second-year surgical oncology fellows. Today's topic is the use of fluorescent adjuncts in thyroid and parathyroid surgery. Given that the identification of parathyroid glands can be difficult for even the most experienced parathyroid surgeon, and in an effort to minimize persistent postoperative hypoparathyroidism or hypocalcemia, there's been a surge in interest in investigation over the past decade of intraoperative adjuncts utilized to identify parathyroid glands during thyroid and parathyroid surgery. Today, we're going to talk about the various options, how best to employ these adjuncts, if at all, and nuances in their utilization. Welcome, everybody. So, John, let's start with you. We're really lucky to have Dr. Fay here, as he is part of the original group uh, that discovered that parathyroid glands have fluorescent properties. So why don't you tell us that story and how that came to be? Sure. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Um, so this is when I was on faculty as an endocrine surgeon at Vanderbilt University. The credit really goes to Lisa White. She was a second-year resident gen- in doing general surgery and had rotated with me and then had done another parathyroid case at one of the outside hospitals that they rotate to and literally was like a horrible five-hour case where they spent hours and hours looking for a parathyroid. And so afterwards, she was like, well, there's got to be a better way to find or identify parathyroids. And I think she was also kind of considering what to do for her research in the lab. Most of the residents at Vanderbilt go to the lab for a couple of years. So she looked up some other adjuncts and other types of surgery and came across a paper by Chris Anderson, who was one of the senior residents at the time, who had used a probe developed uh, by one of the engineers at Vanderbilt, Anita Jansen, where they were trying to distinguish normal tissue from cancer tissue uh, using their fluorescent properties. So they were looking at actually Raman spectroscopy. So not to get into too much in the details, but every molecule has a unique Raman spectrum that spans all the spectrum of light. So infrared, normal light, ultraviolet. And so the idea is, if obviously it would be a great tool to have. And they were trying to use it for liver cancer, but also they were thinking about using it for breast cancer and, and brain cancer, where you can use this probe to say, oh yeah, this is cancer and this is not cancer. And that would help define your margins as a surgeon. So 
And Lisa came across this and I think, you know, was like, well, if they're trying to distinguish cancer from non-cancer, how about just two different organs from each other? So so she approached Anita Jansen, who was the head of the engineering group, and then talked to me. And so we got together and was like, sure, let's give it a try. So, so we brought this kind of lab-made instrument. You know, it was in a suitcase and they brought it in. It was a couple of grad students because Lisa was still busy on her clinical rotations. And that we would put the probe on the different tissues. And certainly one of the limitations was it was all basically, I would have to tell them what the tissue was that we were looking at. And we were trying to compare muscle to trachea to fat. And we included thyroid and parathyroid. And when we got to the parathyroids, the, the machine was just like off the charts. And they were like, yeah, something's wrong, you know. And so we turned off the lights and they took it back to the lab and tried to figure out. Then I had some parathyroid tissues and brought that into their lab and tested that tissue. And sure enough, it was just going like way off the charts. And it was like, and interestingly, it was in the infrared region, you know, and not in the others. And so basically, Anita came to the conclusion that these parathyroid glands have this natural fluorescence in the infrared region. Infrared's kind of interesting because it's got less fluorescence naturally than ultraviolet. It was part of the reason why most of fluorescent guided surgery uses infrared region. I think most people are familiar with indecided green. ICG is a very powerful infrared fluorescent agent that it can be widely used. The nice thing about ICG, you just inject it and it will bind to almost any protein and then has a very intense fluorescence. So Based on those first 20 patients, analyzed the results, and sure enough, fat and trachea and muscle all almost had no fluorescence in the infrared region, while thyroid had a, a, some, and then parathyroid was about eight times higher than the thyroid tissue. So yeah, so eventually, unfortunately, Lisa, for a variety of reasons, didn't make it in the lab, and another grad student, you know, who got his PhD on the subject from Anita's lab came in and serendipitously. I mean, it, it wasn't exactly what we were looking for at the time, but, but yeah, it led to that discovery in that first paper by Dean Paris. And so, um, so I am on that patent, you know, for parathyroid fluorescence, using it to identify parathyroids as a conflict of interest, you know, for this podcast and other talks. It was all based on the probe. <clears throat> and so we licensed that to a, a small biotechnical company, in California, and they basically, over the next several years, put a lot of effort and resources and got it FDA approved and eventually sold it about a year or two ago to Entronic. And so, but in the meantime, I left Vanderbilt and come to Ohio State, and while they were kind of developing the probe and things like that, and I guess what I, I wouldn't know, certainly what I didn't appreciate until later, and certainly give the first people I think that really reported this was the Fr a French group, uh, but also a Korean group, also published it at the same time several years later, that they could use these cameras. You know, what we didn't, what I certainly didn't appreciate is the excitation is very similar to ICG, to innocent and green. So some of the same cameras that they are used for looking at ICG, but also see parathyroids. Now, the, the fluorescence is all based on the excitation. So you have an excitation wavelength and then an emission wavelength at, at a different wavelength because the energy gets absorbed and then re-emitted. And so some cameras can see it and some couldn't, which also we didn't appreciate until much more recently. Well, it's a super 
super cool story. Always love to hear the history behind those things. All right. Well, that was a fantastic story. Thanks for that, John. And Sam, let's move on a little bit. We'll talk about a few of the papers that we have for today and all the growth that's happened in this arena over the last decade. But nobody knows what material or protein or substance autofluoresces. Is that right? Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The natural fluorophore is still unidentified. I know uh, the group at Vanderbilt's been looking at it for a while, but it's been elusive to like discover. Yeah. All right. So I think that's a good segue into this first paper. So Sam, let, let's talk a little bit about the initial paper that was published describing the first case series. And tell us a little bit about beyond kind of the initial reaction that you had during the first case that you used it in. Let's go through, you know, what you've seen as standard practice apart from the adjuncts that we're discussing today. Of course, it can be difficult to identify the parathyroids in the operating room since they look similar to lymph nodes, body tissue, and we're trying to preserve them so the patients are not left with postoperative hypocalcemia. I've seen a few different techniques during my fellowship. Commonly, we'll explore the thyroid specimen after resecting it to ensure that we don't see any tissue that could be suspicious for parathyroid. When we do, if, if you know, before the hamamatsu, if we're not sure, we also can send a small piece of it to the offer a frozen specimen to confirm that it's parathyroid tissue. Also, if it's parathyroid gland, we can reimplant it. This also goes for looking at tissue that maybe wasn't part of the thyroid specimen, but looks like it might have been devascularized while we're dissecting out the thyroid and trying to identify the parathyroid glands. You can send a piece of that for frozen to decide whether or not it needs to be reimplanted. And then postoperatively, we commonly check parathyroid hormone levels, calcium and vitamin D levels, so that if needed, patients can be sent home on calcium or calcitriol. Sometimes the parathyroid glands might just be stunned a little bit and need a little time to recover, or even after having to reimplant them, they need a little time to revascularize. So kind of following up those postoperative labs and then seeing them again in clinic. All right, let's talk about the this 2011 paper that Dr. Faye's group published. And what, why don't you review the, the paper a little bit, just some of the methodology and the main findings and the limitations for the audience? Yeah, it's, it was an exciting paper, exciting time, as Dr. Faye mentioned. It was a pilot in vivo study that was used to try and assess the ability of using near-infrared autofluorescence to identify the parathyroid glands during the operation. So the study included 21 patients, and they did fluorescence spectra measuring from different locations in the neck that included the thyroid, the parathyroid, fat, muscle, lymph node, and what they found was that the parathyroid fluorescence was anywhere from 2 to 11 times higher than the nearby tissues and then the thyroid tissue. And the peak fluorescence was around 820 to 830. So this suggested that the near-infrared autofluorescence of the parathyroid had the potential to be used as a tool in the operating room. Okay. So is there a difference? So, so Priya, you use this routinely in your cases, I think. And is there a difference between autofluorescence in a normal parathyroid gland in an adenoma or hyperplasia? What do you all see? Yeah, so there definitely is a difference between the normal parathyroid and an adenoma. An adenoma can have, so John actually found that an adenoma can have um, a more speckled appearance and the, uh, the intensity of the autofluorescence is a little bit lower than a normal parathyroid. So it's especially useful to identify normal parathyroids if you're doing a, a thyroidectomy. And then it can also be used if you're not sure 
if a gland is normal or if it's a, an adenoma uh, versus hyperplasia, it potentially could be useful in understanding that. But I think a little more research needs to be done before we're confident about those findings. So what can you describe what hyperplasia, what, what a hyperplastic gland looks like compared to an adenoma other than the speckling? We, we kind of tried to characterize the heterogeneity of the gland so that, you know, not too surprising, the hyperplastic glands are more uniform fluorescence as opposed to the adenomas tend to be more heterogeneous. A nice paper in, from France where they show that uh, a good number of their adenomas had this, what we call a cap, kind of a normal piece of parathyroid that we oftentimes can see grossly, and then the rest of the adenoma kind of grows off from it. So all those things, I agree, can can give you a suggestion of whether it's a adenoma versus hyperplasia. Okay. So after this first paper, John, what was your group thinking in terms of considerations as to what needed worked out, technical and clinical, and what you had to do to kind of get this in the hands of other surgeons? In terms of the technology, certain cameras can see it while certain cameras cannot. And so, you know, obviously, I think only flu optics is really... They're the only company I know from a camera standpoint that has changed their camera to improve their parathyroid fluorescence detection. Their newest model, apparently you can, and I must say I haven't used it myself because we don't have it in Ohio State, but you can use it without turning the lights off. One of the kind of downsides of um, using the cameras is that uh, the normal lights in the operating room will interfere with uh, fluorescence. So... So that's always kind of a pain is to have to turn off all the lights, including the headlight. To, and the other pain with the camera system is that you have to look, you know, turn your head to the screen, which is next to the patient, as opposed to the probe. One advantage of the probe is you don't have to turn off the lights and you know exactly what tissue you're touching when you're getting the readings. Cap, well, great. So we, you mentioned a little bit about some of the other adjuncts in terms of ICG before we kind of launch into some of these other papers. Can you briefly review for the listeners the other adjuncts that currently exist and how they work, just briefly? Well, so in ascending green, people have used for uh, a number of years to help identify the parathyroids, but I think probably most of the more recent focus is to determine whether you can measure the viability of a parathyroid gland since ICG basically binds to any protein it comes in contact with. So if you inject it intravenously, it will show blood flow. And so the idea is that if you see good blood flow to the parathyroid and leaving it, then you know it's viable during your surgeries for total thyroidectomies. Uh, one of the downsides of autofluorescence is it really has no bearing on whether it's viable or not. We can take the parathyroid out of the patient and freeze it and thaw it, and it still has strong autofluorescence. So it has no bearing on whether it's viable or not. So how long does that autofluorescence property last for? Well, yeah, we don't know. You know, Anita Jansen's group has done the most research on it, but hours to days. Um, certainly I have had specimens where we've taken it out of the freezer and days to weeks later it still fluoresces. So interesting. I, mean, I have no idea why, but you think most biologic proteins or tissue or things would degrade pretty quickly over time. But for whatever reason, infrared autofluorescence doesn't run. Any other adjuncts that we haven't discussed that are out there? 
like some people do use methylene blue. I think that's kind of fallen out of favor for most folks. I use sustenibi. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So this is that important adjunct, right? All right, Sam, I want you to tell us about the next paper. Yeah, so I, I think what Dr. Faye was talking about, ICG and geography compared to autofluorescence is kind of a great segue into two of our papers that we brought up today. The first paper was just mostly about showing that ICG was safe to use and suggested some correlation between parathyroid perfusion and being able to use that scan. But the one of the other papers that we talked about was actually a study of 44 patients. It was comparing the use of ICG to autofluorescence to the naked eye detection test is what they were calling it, the parathyroids. And so both methods had high parathyroid gland detection rates and low and a low rate of post-op hypocalcemia. And so we've kind of talked about a little bit, but we can almost use this paper to have a discussion about kind of the pros and cons of ICG and autofluorescence based on what their findings were. I think one thing, the timing of the detection, so the autofluorescence was detected very quickly, whereas you have to give ICG time to be taken up by the thyroid, so that can limit its use sometimes. I think the other major point was that ICG requires contrast administration, which is an exposure that people can have an allergic reaction to, and you have to really time it with the exposure. And then I think finally, just that ICG assessed the perfusion of parathyroid glands, but not necessarily could just identify them, whereas the near-infrared autofluorescence that Dr. Faye's group was studying can be used to just identify the parathyroids even after they've been devascularized so that we can reimplant them as needed. So which one's better? Like which one, if I'm going to use something, what should I use? I think it depends a little bit on what you're trying to do. I think for identification of parathyroids, I would hands down go with autofluorescence. I think if you're looking for perfusion and if you need to dissect out, resect, and then auto-transplant a parathyroid, ICG is probably the way to go. That being said, I think those of us that do a lot of endocrine surgery are usually our post-op PTH levels are pretty good. And unless it's a very complicated case, like a challenging Graves case or a bulky central neck dissection, chances are we're going to have pretty good PTH levels afterwards. And ICG administration takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort. And it's a bigger, some of the cameras are bigger compared to the cameras that are available for autofluorescence. And the timing can be a little bit tricky. Uh, having used ICG before, I've missed the window and had to re-administer ICG. So that can sometimes be a little bit challenging as well. So I think overall for ease of use, I would probably go with autofluorescence and for day-to-day autofluorescence. But if you have a practice where you're doing a lot of central neck dissections or a lot of Graves' disease, ICG might be a good adjunct. You know, based on your training at Wisconsin, where many of the folks are injecting sestamibi to help identify parathyroid glands, what and and now that you've had some experience using the cameras for autofluorescence, how do you compare and contrast using sestamibi injections versus the infrared cameras, you know, the pros and cons of both? Yeah, so I, that's a really good question. I think the sestamibi injection is really good at identifying the potential location for a parathyroid if you don't know where the location is. So you don't, the tissue can be very deep. Um, the parathyroid can be very deep and you'll still get a strong signal. And so you can kind of compare different areas and have an idea of where to dissect. On the other hand, autofluorescence is good if the tissue is fairly close to your dissection level because um, it might autofluoresce through uh, several cell layers 
or some thin tissue, but it's definitely not going to fluoresce through really deep tissue layers. So, and in that situation, sesame is helpful. So, for example, I've had retroesophageal parathyroids where I was having difficulty finding the parathyroid. And then with the gamma probe and the sesamibi injection, I was able to identify exactly where the parathyroid was. And it kind of limited the extent of the dissection that I had to do. So you're talking about radio guidance, yeah. not a sesamibi scan, just to clarify right. for everybody. Correct. Right. Yeah. Intraoperative radio guidance. Is that difficult to set up the injections, right? So you have to, what's the timing of when you inject the patient with the sustomibi? So the nuclear med technician will come and inject the patient in the preoperative area 30 minutes before the start of the surgery. And so it has no, the nice thing is it has no effect really on the timing of the actual length of the surgery itself because the time is in the preoperative area. Right. And you, you mentioned the depth of penetration for the camera to to identify autofluorescence. So is it good for finding parathyroglands beneath the capsule of the thyroid or intrathyroidal? How deep does it go? You said a couple cell layers. Yeah, so we know that infrared, one of the advantages of using infrared, it does have better penetrance compared to white light or ultraviolet, which has the least penetrance, but still the penetrance at best, it is a couple millimeters. So in my experience, though, it will see it subcapsular. And I have absolutely seen sub-intrathyroidal parathyroids fluoresce. The problem is, like with any technology, there's false positives and false negatives. And sometimes a colloid nodule can fluoresce. And again, we don't know why any of these things fluoresce. Is it similar with sestamibi and radio guidance is that sometimes thyroid nodules will will become evident when they're not parathyroid gland. So that's interesting. And I hadn't heard that about about that's correct. And then autofluorescence. The other important thing is both auto so for autofluorescence, brown fat also autofluoresces as well. So younger patients sometimes it can be a little bit harder to use autofluorescence compared to sesamibi. So if you run into a situation like that in the operating room, do you have somebody come inject sesamibi? If you're having trouble finding a parathyroid gland, because somebody with a lot of brown fat in the neck is kind of an endocrine surgeon's nightmare, because they might do look very similar to parathyroid glands. Yeah, no, I think that's a real challenge, right? And yeah, some of our studies, like our, we did a study on any in one patients and found that it was not as helpful. And I think part of the reason was those folks tend to be younger patients, and so we had more false positives. So, uh, I mean, I think the bottom line, like like any technology, uh, a fool with a tool is still a fool, right? <laughs> so, so you have to have some experience, and and obviously in those real tricky case, cases, I still use a frozen section to help try to distinguish the two. All right, Sam, you want to tell us about the last paper we have for today? Yeah, I mean, this was the largest study that we're planning to discuss is coalition JAMA surgery. It was actually a randomized clinical trial with six-month follow-up at three different hospitals in France. It had 245 patients, all who underwent a total thyroidectomy. And their primary outcome was looking at postoperative hypocalcemia. And they defined this as measuring a corrected calcium less than eight on postoperative day one or two. The rate in the group that used autofluorescence was 9.1% versus 21.7% in the control group. What's interesting, though, is that there was no long-term difference in hypocalcemia rates, so this was really a short-term outcome. 
that they found. And additionally, with the use of the autofluorescence, they had a lower number of patients who required autotransplantation of the parathyroid because they had fewer inadvertently resected parathyroid glands because they were able to use the technology to help identify them before resecting. So clearly they saw a difference at short term, but didn't see a difference long term. And the, the long term hypocalcemic rate was 0% with the infrared group. There's only 1.5% for the control group. So when you're trying to improve a 1.5%, even though they had, whatever, 250 patients in the trial, obviously that, that's not going to show a difference. To, um, but they did show that the inadvertent parathyroid removed was about four times higher in those without using the K-Well. And I must say that's probably where I personally see almost the most value is looking at the resected thyroid after I've taken it out. I had one last week where I literally found two parathyroid glands that I probably would not have found. It was a very large goiter and there was a lot of different things. It was, you know, all these kind of weird looking nodules. And then you're always like, well, probably thyroid, but you know, you're always back in your mind, it could be parathyroid. And we brought the camera out and sure enough, two spots were just definitely much brighter and dissected them out and showed off they were parathyroids, which we re-implanted. Whether that's going to make, and it was also nice because we confirmed that the two other glands we'd seen were still there and we think they looked viable and who knows whether it made any difference long-term or not in our patient, but we did re-implant those other two that we found. So that's great. Thanks for um, going through this study, Sam. So I'm interested, I, I'd like to hear from everybody as we kind of wrap this up, who is this going to be most useful to? Are we going to make a difference in permanent hypocalcemia rates? Sam, you want to start us off? What, what are you going to do in, in practice down the road? <laughs> you know, I know on liver is in my future practice, but... So carcinoids have autofluorescence. Yeah, so. Oh, that's for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've seen the autofluorescence technology used here at OSU, and I definitely have had cases with each of you where it's come in handy to be able to identify the parathyroid before we remove it, or even on, oh man, we saw three of them, where was the last one, and you pull out the thyroid, and there it is, and it was because it was between like the large goiter and the normal thyroid tissue, and we probably wouldn't have found it. I think it's an exciting and interesting technology, and I'm kind of looking forward to seeing where it goes next. Priya, what do you what do you think? I am definitely gonna keep using Sestamibi injections preoperatively for my parathyroid cases. Not gonna do that for thyroids, but I love having the autofluorescence camera available for cases that are a little bit more challenging to look on the thyroid to see if there's any parathyroids that are left or that if I'm just, if there's something that might be a parathyroid that I'm not seeing. I think also in the future, I'm really excited about using some of the newer technology that, that Dr. Fay had mentioned, where you have a smaller, instead of using a camera, you can use a probe to identify the tissue, and that has a little bit better, better penetration also than the camera, too. So I'm excited about trying that out. John? Yeah, so, well, of course, I'm biased. I haven't been there from the ground using autofluorescence, but I definitely like it. And I, you know, it's such a great feeling. Like on that case I did last week where we found two that we probably wouldn't have seen otherwise. So I'm, I'm definitely going to use it. I tend to use it selectively and I kind of uh, go back and forth 
it's always the worst thing in the world to get that final pathology back on your total thyroid and having an uh, incidental parathyroid kind of drives me crazy. I think also in the future, once we figure out what the floor for it is, hopefully we can uh, improve both the camera and potentially excita the excitation of the parathyroids to, to make it even more beneficial. I do think it's most helpful, and, and the Vanderbilt group has shown this nicely, that the young surgeons tend to use it more and find it more valuable when you're just starting off your surgical practice as an endocrine surgeon. And you can have this tool to tell you, yes, that's parathyroid, or no, that's not. You know, it's it's very valuable. And I think also a good learning tool just for our residents and fellows uh, to help them figure out what's parathyroid and what's thyroid. Yeah, I think that the utility is great for surgeons who are younger. I think trying to convince surgeons who have been doing this for a long time who have excellent outcomes, they're going to want to see a little bit more data on what the impact is on permanent hypocalcemia rates. But I agree with you that definitely when you see that parathyroid show up on your final pathology and you're like, I looked at the thyroid capsule, I dissected under the capsule in various areas where I thought there was a parathyroid. So maybe it's intrathyroidal. And that's one of the questions I have about the methodology in the paper is, you know, the pathologists just say on the reports, hey, there's a parathyroid. And you're like, well, I checked the capsule, right? So where was it? Was it intrathyroidal? And so that's always been a question for me. But I think the more that I hear about it and the more data there is, that there's definitely times that I've started to call for it a little bit more often than in the past. So I think this was a great discussion. It'll be great to see some of the work that comes here in the next probably five years or so. And we could spend a lot more time discussing a lot more details. It's been a really robust discussion. It's great to hear kind of the history on this too. So I'd like to thank Dr. Faye, Dr. Dedia, Dr. Ruff for sharing their thoughts with us. OH, bye-o, let's dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.